Brethren, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We're giving our attention this morning to verses 1 through 18 of this portion of the Word of God. And before I read it, let's ask the Lord to enlighten our eyes with this truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You, the speaking God, and we pray that You would make our ears receptive to what You say. We pray that You would cause our hearts to receive Your Word and to be changed by it. Instruct us in the truth, O Lord, because Your truth never perishes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Acts 11, again starting in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the Word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, thus far, God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, after a week off, we return this morning to the book of Acts, and we have now entered phase three of the Gospel's advance. You remember the risen and ascending Lord Jesus told the apostles back in Acts 1.8, the theme verse, that they would be His witnesses. In Jerusalem, that occurs in Acts 2-6, to in Judea and Samaria, Acts 7 to 9, and to the ends of the earth. That language, the ends of the earth, is from the prophet Isaiah talking about the conversion of the Gentiles. And it has now begun as an Italian cohort leader, this centurion Cornelius was converted in Caesarea in Acts chapter 10. 
Cornelius, we remember, was a God-fearer. He was a believer embracing the Jewish scriptures and looking for the Christ, but he hadn't yet understood that the Christ is Jesus. But with supernatural activity, visions of an angel, a, a trance, and a divine voice directing Peter, Peter has brought the gospel to a new territory. Now, there's irony here because Caesarea is really not that far from Jerusalem, and it really isn't even outside the Roman province of Judea. But this, brethren, is the start of the worldwide gospel expansion in Acts, which is going to end in the book with the gospel going to the heart of paganism, Rome itself. Now, we've heard about the gospel going to Cornelius as his house and relatives, they were gathered. But we're in a little section that's stacked with repetition. We heard about Cornelius's angelic vision and the command to go get Peter. We heard about Peter's vision of the sheet three times the Lord gave him this vision. The guys came to Peter, reported everything Cornelius saw. Peter goes. He has them tell the whole story again. And he told them about the sheet thing. God no longer is uh, bringing the separation between Jew and Gentile. There is no partiality. Time for Peter to lay down his pride. So thus far, as we're tracking things, Peter's had a vision three times. Cornelius' story has been told three times. And now we are here in Acts chapter 11, and we get a third recounting of everything that has happened in the whole story. Now, frankly, this is the kind of stuff, if we're honest, that we're tempted to ignore. It's kind of like the tabernacle being repeated all over again after the instructions were given. God is saying the same thing again, and again, and in this case, again. Doesn't Luke know how to tell a good story? Right? You can't focus on the same scene multiple times and expect people to absolutely pay attention. Well, that may be true with our impatient era, but repetition is crucial to Luke's narrative. In fact, the Bible as a whole repeats things to drive home the importance. Think of the double giving of the Ten Commandments. Think of the multiple occurrences of the Exodus account or the Lord delivering Jerusalem and Hezekiah. Three times that story is told by the angel, the one angel who goes and kills. you remember how many? 185,000 Assyrians. Now, I'm not going to go into depth as we start about the repetition of multiple miracles of Jesus or the recounting of His life, His death, with the trial, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection that's told four times over. But I will stress to you that three things, sorry, two things Luke tells us three times. Two things Luke tells us three times. One is Paul's conversion, which we could well say changed the world. And in this compact little narrative in Acts 10 to 11, we get Cornelius' conversion to Christ and Peter's vision three times in a row. What does that mean for us? It means this is really, really important. So, as you hear this again, let us not be like the Athenian ADD folks who rejoice only in hearing something new. Let us be a people who want to hear the old, old story of Jesus and His love one more time. Because in the amazing love of God, the gospel has broken down the barrier 
between Jew and Gentile. And the world is never the same. And we're not the same, we Gentiles. Now, anytime a massive change like this happens in the history of redemption, where barriers are crumbling between Jew and Gentile, no more dietary laws, no more ceremonially clean idea, circumcision no longer the marker of God's people, that one's going to be really hard for the Jews to accept. One can imagine with these changes, there's going to be controversy. And you betcha there is. It's a controversy that starts here, is going to go all the way through Acts 15, occupies the entire book of Galatians, parts of Romans and Ephesians and Philippians. So it's really important we get it at the start, that the Spirit is confirming the saving work of God. Let's see three things as we make our way through the passage. First, I want you to think with me about the Spirit and the Word in verse 1. So in the days after Peter's vision and his visit to Cornelius' house with this mass conversion, the word about what had happened spread. Look at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. What word did they receive? They received the apostolic gospel. They received the facts of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Spirit-awakened souls hear the call to trust in Jesus in view of His work, and they do. They embrace the facts of the gospel proclaimed, and they repent and believe. They receive the word that Jesus is the Lord of life, and they then submit to Him. Being filled with the Spirit could produce outward phenomenon, but the proof of the work of the Spirit is not in baptism, it's not in shouting amen, it's not in raising your hands, it's not in weeping, it's not in tongue speaking. There have been many, many souls from Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve who did miracles, to Simon the magician in Acts 8 who was baptized, to people who would say to Jesus at the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? There have been many people with outward phenomenon who were yet lost. What is the evidence of an inward heart change? That's what we see in verse 1. They received the Word of God. And that begs a crucial question. Have we received the Word of God? Have we welcomed the Word? Not has it reverberated in your eardrums over the course of many years. Does Jesus occupy the citadel of your soul? Have you staked your life on the message of the gospel so that you cling to Christ and Christ alone? Has the Spirit of God made you hear the shepherd's voice and therefore you rest wholly in what Jesus has done and you follow Him? Brethren, that is what conversion looks like. And the central thing here in seeing more converts is not a bunch of outward hoopla overtaking the message. The central thing is the preaching of the Word. It's proclaiming Christ, His atoning death, His victorious resurrection, and His willingness to receive all who repent and believe in Him. So what a church should want then is not a report of hand raisings and hallelujahs. Who's going to fill out the little cards? Who walked down an aisle? What the church should want is confirmation that the people of God received the Word of God. 
And how do we know they received it? They're orienting their whole life around the word Jesus Christ. In fact, as we keep reading this wonderful book of Acts, how are we seeing the Holy Spirit drive the gospel into new territory? What means is the Spirit using? He's using the Word. What is absolutely central to Luke's book of Acts and will remain central? The preaching of the Word. This weak method that the world regards as foolishness is God's very means to convert sinners and to convince the saints and to grow His church. Do we see the marvel of what God is doing? Have we received that word and do we rejoice in it? May the Lord cause us, brethren, to see that spiritually awakened people are people who love the word and live by the word. But then secondly, see, criticism and spiritual direction. Now, this is going to be a lengthy point, verses 2 to 17, but it's really the heart of what's here. As the news is spread about these Gentiles receiving the word, specifically how they received it, Peter went into one of the Gentiles' homes? Are you kidding me? Criticism quickly arose in Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice that the criticism didn't drive Peter to go to Jerusalem. It's not as though a summons is issued by the session or the group of elders and the apostles there at Jerusalem and they're calling Peter to account to come. No, he's going to Jerusalem voluntarily. We'll get the court scene actually in Acts 15. But Peter goes, just like when he went out to Samaria and came back, he gives a report to the church at Jerusalem and he tells them of the great things that God has done. But not everybody is thrilled about this whole Gentile being converted thing. Verse 2, the circumcision party. Now, that identifies not every circumcised person in the Jerusalem church, but a subset, a, a faction of the church who are claiming that circumcision is the marker of being a part of the people of God. Incidentally, it will be the circumcision party, exact same language that Paul is encountering in the book of Galatians, who are causing so much trouble. So this is the start of that controversy. The circumcision party, they criticize Peter, saying, verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. These men are appalled at Peter. Because Peter's action is in direct violation, not actually of Scripture, but of how they understood Scripture to be applied and the dietary laws and how you relate to a Gentile. The mindset is simple. You, a Jew, cannot have fellowship with unclean Gentiles in any way. They are beyond the pale. They're cut off from us. They need to be cleansed. And they need to have the outward sign of cleansing, which is circumcision, applied to them. And the thinking is really simple. They have to become Jews first before they can commit to Jesus. Jews first, then you can commit to Jesus. Now, the circumcision party as a group are totally missing that circumcision done by the hands, an outward act, is to point to something that man's hands can't do. Circumcise the heart. 
Moses spoke of that in Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30. And then it's reiterated in a principle Ezekiel gave of the new covenant. Do you remember the new covenant promise? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I'll I'll cleanse you from the filthiness of your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. This is the background to Jesus' command to Nicodemus. You, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born of water and spirit. Without the new birth, Nicodemus, externals, even circumcision, means nothing. Well, Nicodemus didn't get it in John chapter 3. And even after Jesus' years of teaching, the resurrection, the ascension, these Jews here in the church in Jerusalem still don't get it. For them, the insinuation is plain. Gentiles cannot be saved in their present state. Gentiles need to externally change and then they can receive the gospel. Here, beloved, is the Christ plus curse that's going to destroy or corrupt the church in so many ways in apostolic times and even down to the present. It is a gospel-denying concept. Do this thing, obey these rules, follow this 12-step program, and then grace can come to you. If two weeks ago I, I used Machen's language where we saw Peter preach the gospel to Cornelius, that the gospel began with a triumphal indicative, here's what Jesus has done, That's the true gospel. Now we're hearing from these guys in the Jerusalem church that the gospel, which is no gospel at all, begins with what you do, not what Christ has done. Clean yourself up. Then we can get you some grace. Work to do things that please God, and then He will save you. But that totally nullifies grace. That's what's at stake here. That's why this is so important. Is the gospel the gospel? Or, brethren, do we have to do stuff to earn our reconciliation with God? Paul's going to say in the book of Colossians, if it's true that we have to do stuff to get right with God, then Jesus died to no purpose. This is a really big deal. But I want you to notice Peter's tactic. After Peter listens to them, him and haw about it, he doesn't scold them as a bunch of idiots. He doesn't blast them as fools, embracing heretical ideas. Though it should be noted that the Apostle Paul, a little farther down the line, will be much more severe when after all God teaches right here, they still don't get it and they reject the gospel. But Peter here, the first go around, he indicates, guys, I was right there with you. I feel you, man. I know exactly what you're thinking because that's what I was thinking. But let me tell you what the Lord has done. Let me show you how I was wrong. That we Jews, while we're privileged, we are not exalted over the Gentiles. There is no partiality with God. And then for the third time, we hear all the details about Peter's vision, about Cornelius. And Peter's account, he says in verse 4, is explained to them in order, Luke tells us. That little phrase at the end, in order, 
doesn't mean necessarily Peter is conveying the chronological order of what happened. Actually, Cornelius saw an angel before Peter had a vision of a sheet. But the phrase in order recalls Luke chapter 1, verse 3, where Luke said he was giving Theophilus a well-researched, investigated, set-in-order account. So what Peter's about to give us is the official story. Now, when the government gives you the official story, you might kind of turn a blind eye. But when an apostle gives you the official story, you really should perk up. This is the apostolically sanctioned word of what God did. And then Peter relates the details. We heard about Peter's trance while in prayer, verse 4, the vision of the sheet descending with all the animals in it, and the divine voice, verse 7, saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, as Peter relates the story, notice right here how he doesn't change it to make himself look good. Peter doesn't whitewash his poor response. He tells the guys the plain truth. I objected to the voice of Jesus. Jesus told me, rise, kill, and eat. I said, by no means, Lord. Pull yourself together, Lord. Are you crazy? Don't be ridiculous. I've never put an unclean or common thing in my mouth. Peter is telling us that one more time he had dared to tell Jesus, Jesus, you got it wrong. Isn't that embarrassing? You betcha it is. But Peter, like the Bible as a whole, doesn't give us a sanitized version of events that happen in the lives of God's people. This is another confirming fact that the Bible is true. If you were Moses... Would you write down the things that you did that were dumb? Probably not. If you're Peter right here, would you relate to them all the things that you said that were not wise? Probably not. You're going to edit your own story. Peter doesn't do that. The Bible is like that, brethren. We get the real story. We get the saints, warts and all. We hear of their slowness to believe, their struggles, their stubbornness and God's incredible patience to bear with them and teach them. And the portrayal here of Peter's flaws actually serves the vital point of the whole message. There's no way someone could do something to earn the grace of God. The gospel can't be perform this act, go through this ceremony, get this mark in your flesh, and then the Lord will give you saving grace. Because... Even the best of men, like Peter, shows us that he's just a a sinner. After all that the Lord has taught Peter, Peter is still struggling to hear and receive God's voice. Now, he's going to eventually bow to the voice of the Lord, which is what a believer will do. But that doesn't always mean we respond well the first time. Are you one of those people that doesn't respond well the first time? Eventually, you you come around. That's Peter. And the Lord perseveres with Peter's folly. Indeed, as Peter recounts the patience of the Lord, he shows us, reminding us again, how many times did he receive the vision? Three times. Now, you know that Jesus could have just said, forget it, Peter. I'm just going to pick another apostle because you're clearly too blockheaded for me to use. It's really reminiscent with Moses. Do you remember the encounter, the bush scene in Exodus 3 and 4? Do you, do you know how many excuses Moses comes up with? He tells the Lord, 
Who am I that I should be the one to speak for you? And then he says, well, they're not going to believe me. And the Lord gives him three signs. Well, I'm not eloquent. I've never been eloquent. And then he says, to top it all off, can't you just get somebody else? God doesn't let him off the hook. The, The Lord perseveres with his servants. Well, that's what he's doing here with Peter. And through repetition, God is pounding into Peter's brain the truth. That took a while. Some of us are stubborn. But after seeing the vision three times, Peter still wasn't done with the scene. He he wasn't getting it. And then, right at the very moment that the vision was over for the third time, behold, verse 11, three men arrived at the house. And then, verse 12, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. Peter is learning by the Spirit's persistent direction that the vision of no unclean animals actually relates to no unclean Gentiles as these guys arrive. I'm not to make distinctions with food, but I'm not to make distinctions with people. The gospel is for all. Christ is the Lord of all. All people can be saved, not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So Peter goes with them. Now, as Peter relays these facts, he's aiming to build a rapport with these brothers who are objecting. I understand your confusion, guys. I hesitated at first. I'm just like you. Similar to actually what he did to Cornelius when Cornelius bowed down to him and Peter said, get up. I, too, am a man. I'm just like you. You See how Peter's using his commonality and from a position of humility conveying the truth. But he says to these guys, look at what the Lord did. Look, I didn't come up with this on my own initiative. I haven't gone rogue and started making up my own rules. The Spirit told me to go. In fact, I took six Jewish brothers with me, and they're now here in Jerusalem, and they can confirm the truth. It's not six random dudes who saw this. It's six Jewish brothers plus Peter. Now, I know our math skills are limited, but six plus one is seven. And seven, we remember in Scripture, is a number of completeness. It's as though the Lord is providing a complete testimony that we've entered a new era. And then Peter relates, look, when I got to Cornelius' house, there was more divine confirmation. Verse 13, he told us how he had seen an angel. And the angel said, go get Simon Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And do you see, brethren, that the Lord is working on both sides of this thing? Cornelius saw an angel. Peter had a vision. The angel told Cornelius, go get Peter. The guys coming from Cornelius' house told Peter, come with us. And the Spirit said, go with those guys. Do you see how the Lord is working in multiple ways to confirm His will? And then to top it off, when Peter started preaching, the Holy Spirit interrupted his sermon. Verse 15, as I began to speak, declaring Jesus' resurrection and so forth, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as us at the beginning. In other words, the Holy Spirit didn't treat these Gentiles differently. He fell on them in the same way that He had fallen on us back in Acts chapter 2. There is no distinction. So while the circumcision party is objecting, Peter says, 
what right did I have to withhold baptism from these people when the Spirit has already baptized them? Who could I be to stand in the way? Now, let's sum all this up. As Peter relates the events, I want you to see what John Stott has called four successive hammer blows of divine revelation. Four successive hammer blows of divine revelation. Peter didn't lay aside his prejudice, dare I say, his racism, lightly. The Lord convinced him when he was completely wrong with four successive blows, hammer blows, of divine revelation. Peter should have known better. This is evident in the Old Testament. It's evident as Jesus ministers in his ministry. But he missed it. So what did God do? Hammer blow number one. The vision of the sheet. Three times. It's really hammer blow number one plus three. Hammer blow number two. The Spirit commands Peter to go with the men from Caesarea. Hammer blow number three. Peter hears from Cornelius that an angel had appeared to Cornelius and said, go get Peter. And then hammer blow number four. The Spirit fell on these Gentiles who believed the Word. Why is God giving so much divine revelation? Why are we laying out all these particulars, such miraculous intervention? It is to put the matter beyond question. Peter is a hard nut to crack. But the Lord cracked him with four successive hammer blows of divine revelation. And as we watch this, we should stand amazed that our God is willing to hammer the truth into us, to help us along when we are so slow to understand. Can you relate to Peter? Maybe you can relate to Gideon. How many signs did Gideon have to see to do what he was told to do? Well, there's the double fleece episode, but that's actually not the end of the story. The Lord also gave him confirmation through a pagan with a dream. God is telling him again and again and again. Or think about David. Samuel comes and anoints David to be king, but David starts doubting because Saul's trying to kill him. That'd probably cause us to doubt too. But then Samuel reconfers the word to David and Jonathan comes out to tell David and Abigail tells David and even Saul after Saul tried to kill him and he didn't succeed. Saul says, you know what, David, I know one day you're going to be king. Even his enemy is confirming that this is true, but David is still struggling to get it. We can think about Jesus walking with his disciples through the ministry. And don't you see that he's teaching the disciples the same lessons over and over and over? He has to tell them to stop arguing about who's the greatest multiple times. How embarrassing is that? At the Lord's Supper, they're having an argument about who is the greatest. If it were us, we would say, you know, I need the B team because the A team clearly isn't working. Let's move on. And then Jesus' great encounter with Peter when Peter is saying, I will not deny you even if all these knuckleheads run away. Jesus says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you all like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then this striking word, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is amazing. The Lord doesn't let us go. The Lord is willing to keep repeating Himself. 
to hammer the truth into us. The Lord is willing in His love to us to expose our faulty thinking over multiple iterations of the truth and to lavish His truth upon us so that in our dullness, we eventually get it. Are we going to get everything? Probably not. But are we going to get what is central about the gospel? Well, yes, if we're truly a Christian. Brethren, our God is kind. And this is a way to see it. And in so many circumstances of life, you may be struggling this morning wondering if the Lord is good and kind because you're dealing with really hard things. And this is just a little way to show you how the Lord is bearing with us and attends to us and brings His Word to bear multiple times upon us. And we should be thankful. We should be thankful also for the larger point here. Not only does the Spirit direct us and overcome our muddled thinking, the Spirit presses to us that we are saved not by the works of our hands, but by His grace alone. And that should make us shout for joy. David once said, Psalm 25, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. If you're thankful to be a sinner who's taught, we'll go home rejoicing. But then finally see, submission and sovereignty. Submission and sovereignty. When they heard these things, Peter's account of the Spirit's work, they fell silent. No one rose to counter Peter's reasoning. And we read, instead of arguing, they glorified God. It appears the majority accepted what Peter had to say, and then they stopped criticizing and started praising. They praised God for His mighty acts because the Gentiles are being converted. And then they make a great statement, verse 18, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, before we tackle that monumentally significant statement, I want to remind you that right here, while everyone appears to submit and glorify God, later the circumcision party are going to reject everything. Later, the circumcision party are going to start insisting that yes, Gentiles must get circumcised and submit to the law of Moses or they cannot be saved. And you're probably wondering, how can they do that when this is so clear? Well, it reminds us of several times in the Gospels when the Pharisees would see a work of God, a miracle of Jesus, and glorify God and then still reject Christ. When Nicodemus could come to Jesus and say, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. And then what are they doing just a few chapters later? They're calling Jesus the prince of demons, right? The prince of sorry, Beelzebub. You're, you're following the devil. The devil is at work in you. Everything that you're doing is by the prince of darkness. This little scene where there's initial silence, token praise, but later resistance should make us all kind of take a, a heart check for a second. Do we really believe salvation is by grace alone? Do we really rest only in Jesus? Do we see the work of the Spirit and then still resist God? Resisting the Spirit with a stubborn heart of unbelief is something that people in the church are doing in this passage. Don't give mere lip service to God's power and then have a heart that's far away from the Lord. 
check your heart. Are you embracing this? Now again, some are going to struggle with this issue and it's going to become a controversy. But the majority accept it. And they say, and we'll wrap up thinking about this verse. God has granted, God has given, we could translate, the repentance that leads to life. Verse 17. God gave, same word as, sorry, that was verse 18, same word as verse 17. God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles as He gave to us. Same idea. God has given a work of grace, repentance. And there's an echo here of John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wishes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You can't tame the Spirit. You can't control the Spirit. You can't be the author of spiritual life. It comes from above, from God. Likewise, what's being said here is that the repentance that leads to life is not a thing that man creates. We don't have the power to repent. We can't do something to qualify for God's grace. If you do the thing that you can do, you repent, then God will give you grace. That's a perversion of the gospel. God has to give the power to repent. And those who are dead in sin and alienated by, from, by nature from God, we need a resurrection power to come upon our soul. We need to be called out of the tomb like Jesus said to Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. And brethren, that's what salvation is, the work of effectual calling. Our, our catechism puts it like this. Question 31 of the Shorter Catechism. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby, listen to these lang this language, whereby the Spirit convincing us of our sin and misery enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, He, the Spirit, doth persuade and enable. Persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ as He freely offered in the Gospel. What's happening here is that God is willing to give these blind, darkened Gentiles an awakening to see who Christ is. They're taken from a state of deadness in sin to life in Christ and they don't praise themselves for how smart they are. God did it. The repentance, of course, has never detached from the gift of faith, which is also a gift. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. These Gentiles haven't made attempts to start orienting their lives around Jesus. No, they didn't understand who Jesus was, that He was the Savior. But as Peter preached, the Lord opened their eyes and suddenly, by the power of the Spirit, they give themselves fully to Jesus. That's the significance of the expression repentance that leads to life. We're not talking about repentance for one particular sin here. We're talking about repentance of a former life and now my whole life is about Christ. Life is totally founded on Jesus. And by grace alone, these Gentiles get it. What are we learning as we close? Two things. One, there are no barriers to full fellowship between Jew and Gentile who trust in Jesus Christ. What we need for salvation is Christ alone. 
not Christ plus some new habits. How does the great hymn Rock of Ages put it? Thou must saved, and thou alone. But then second, we see that the gospel is preached, and as it's preached, we don't get the possibility of repentance. God gives repentance. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. As we hear the gospel, we don't bring the work of our hands. No, we receive what He gives by grace. Yes, the gospel calls us to repentance. And some of you who are really thinking about this are starting to wonder, well, how can God command me to do something that I can't do? Let me tell you how I and my simple brain have tried to figure that out. And it's with a story. Mark chapter 3. Jesus is in a synagogue. There's a man there with a withered hand. Jesus calls the man with the withered hand to come up. You know what Jesus tells that man with the withered hand to do? You probably do remember. Stretch out your hand. That man didn't say, what are you asking me to do? Are you mocking me? I can't do that. That's the very thing I have no power to do. How in the world can I do what you say? This man trusts that with the command of Christ comes the power to do what Jesus said. And guess what happens? He stretches out his hand because life came to his hand by a miracle. What happens in the soul as the gospel is preached? Dead people hear the word and by a miracle, repentance and faith are given to them. That's how God saves. What does it mean for us ultimately? It means when we talk about salvation, we only say, praise be to God. No effort to me. It's all Him. May we see how kind our God is to awaken us to life at all and then to teach us in His patience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come and we marvel at Your goodness, at the saving power that You display as You rescue sinners. We thank You, O Lord, that You pound the truth into our stubborn hearts. And Lord, we pray that as we have seen that Christ is the Savior, that we would only give You the praise because You've taken our dull souls and You have awakened us to see and to flee unto Jesus for salvation. Lord, we praise You for that. Help us to go out rejoicing as we consider it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.